Amen. Please be seated. And please turn in your Bibles to the book of Habakkuk. This is the prophet of the Old Testament. Please have the passage in front of you. You'll you'll need all of chapter 2. I do have two verses, the first part and the last part. They're printed with an outline for you. I find that, for my own reading, that the prophetic books can be a challenge to interpret. There's many reasons for this. There's the, the kind of poetry that's used, a lack of knowledge of the historical context. Every prophet writes at a different time, and there are different things going on. It helps to know what those factors are. So it's a challenge sometimes to read the prophetic books. If you're like me, that's sometimes the, they're not the first places I go to do Bible reading when I'm just, you know, in a spontaneous time of picking up the Word. I don't usually go to Zechariah or Amos or Habakkuk. Uh, but as the Lord has willed, we started this uh, four-week trek through the book, and it's, it's clear to us after the first chapter what's happening. Uh, but then when we get to chapter two, again, the poetry of it and the, the kind of language demands uh, us to slow down a little bit and consider what's being said. So I'd like to paint the picture for you a little so it makes more sense when I read through it. You remember the book starts with the prophet recognizing that the nation of Judah that's supposed to resemble uh, the people of God uh, even though not everybody who's in the nation's a true believer in Yahweh, they were given great privilege. Judah, they still withstood the discipline of God that the northern kingdom was lost to with Assyria. And now just two tribes left, you have Judah. And the Messiah is going to come from the tribe of Judah. And so there might have been a little bit of a sense of nationalistic uh, privilege that the Lord will, no matter what we do and how we live, we're just fine. The nation may have been thinking that. Now, the faithful of God who lived in Judah wouldn't be thinking that way. But the majority, the nation, uh, they were definitely walking in rebellion against God. They looked more like the pagan nations around them than anything that mirrored God's word. And so Habakkuk is crying out to God about this state of affairs in Judah, saying, how bad is it in our nation? Lord, you're not going to just watch as, as countrymen treat each other the way they're treating each other, and he just pours out his heart in concern about how bad off Judah is. Lord, give change. Stop this. That's the, the prayer of the prophet. Now, he doesn't expect, I'm sure, what the Lord responds with. The Lord responds with, I will stop this, I will discipline this, and I will bring a more wicked nation to bear on Judah. And you can imagine the prophet's response. That's not what he was looking for that a worse nation than Judah, and definitely a worse nation, Babylon. Uh, There weren't even true believers in the midst of Babylon. At least Judah, for all its outward rebellion, there were some in Judah who did trust in Yahweh, who did worship at the temple and believe in what the sacrifices pointed to. But in Babylon, there were none of those, and it showed how how, uh, voracious their appetite to swallow nations and stuff and people with no regard for any of it. You're going to raise up Babylon? So Habakkuk responds to the Lord, Babylon? How, why Babylon? But it's like the, the prophet knows the Lord has spoken. And even though he cries out to God for him not to do this, he says, I'm going to wait for you to answer. And now we come to the answer that God gives to Habakkuk's last appeal on the part of Judah. And what he'll tell him, and to break down the passage so you see what's coming. We start at verse 2 you'll see the Lord give this formal prophetic oracle about what's going to happen. Judgment will come, and Judah will feel that judgment. 
And the faithful will have to live in the midst of it. And when the faithful are living in the midst of it, they need to continue to trust in the ultimate promises of God. They'll be true about the judgment that's brought, and they'll also be true about the future that the godly have. That's the first few verses, verse 2 to 4. God reminding the faithful in the midst of trouble how to look to him. Then, verse 5 all the way down to verse 19, you have a series of pronunciations of woe or judgment uh, upon the nation of Babylon. So, yes, Babylon's worse than Judah, but they, like every other prideful nation or person, will ultimately fall under God's hand of discipline. So there's an explanation, a very pointed explanation that shows God is personally involved. He knows exactly what Babylon's about. And he's going to lay out the things that Babylon does that have been, been growing and growing the wrath of God against them. And we'll see how God will pour out his wrath upon the prideful. And that's always the case. Whether it be a nation or a person, you can't stand in puffed up pride against the God of the universe. You have to humble yourself and recognize our submission that is needed to him. And it's a willful submission on the part of the people of God. But there's real clarity in that middle section. In fact, when you think about our nation's birthday, and this could be true any nation, and we're certainly very privileged to live in America, but we have to also acknowledge that some of these traits we're going to see Babylon expressing, we'll recognize in our own land. And that's true in other lands too. We're not the only ones, but this is where we are. And so we'd be wise to pay close attention because these are timeless principles that where nations become puffed up and celebrate pride, whatever that pride's about, Pride in itself is something that, that God opposes. And we see that's what Babylon looks like in the middle section. And then the very last verse, it's a call to worship. It's a call to humility. It's a call to be the opposite of that pride you see puffed up that we can even see ourselves in. And we humble ourselves before the Lord. That's the division of this second chapter. So with that preface, I'll begin and I'll read verse 2 to verse 20. This is the word of the Lord, Habakkuk 2. And the Lord answered me, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time, it hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it, it will surely come, it will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up, it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith." Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol, like death he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects as his own all all peoples. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who keeps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges. Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. For the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall, and the beam from the woodwork respond. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? 
For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink to pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your, you will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrify them, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. What prophet is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake! To a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. O Lord, please give us your Spirit's special help to understand the meaning of Habakkuk's prophecy, where we might be hindered by our lack of knowledge of the context. Please uh, help me to make this as clear as possible, where we might wonder how this passage has principles that are timeless. Let us see this clearly. Most of all, please increase our faith and our trust in you and the promises of your word. And I pray this through Jesus. Amen. The passage begins uh, in very stark fashion. When I was a student in college, nobody had a laptop or an electronic device in class, if you could possibly imagine those days. Laptops existed in the early 90s, but they were big, expensive, and heavy. No one carried them. Everyone took notes by hand. I was dating Sherry by the end of my junior year in college, and once I saw how good her notes were, I acted like I was taking notes, but I always waited until after and got her spiral notebook and then took it to the Xerox machine and copied off her pages because they were written so much better than anything I could write. Now, by the time I got to seminary, just a few years later, a few people now started having laptops with them, but for the most part, uh, still by hand, people wrote. So as I became a teacher over the years, and I saw it evolve into the point where now in my class that I'll teach in the next couple weeks, church history, every student will have a slick piece of technology to write down everything. Some of them record what I say, which is, really scares me, but they record what I say and they write it down. So every once in a while, I'll be to this passionate point I'm trying to make in the lesson, and I make them all stop typing. Stop typing. Write this down, I'll tell them. Now, not all of them even have a pen, but I say, write this down. You, you take notes on this. And I mean to say to them, what I'm about to say is going to be on the test, and it's really important for you not to forget this. And I want you to have it so that you can test it as time unfolds. This is what God means to say with much more profundity, of course, when he says to Habakkuk in his response to Habakkuk's second appeal, Listen up. In fact, I want you to write this down. Not just anything on tablets. Look at verse 2. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. I'm going to tell you about this judgment that I've been promising. And I'm going to tell you the fullness of it. It won't just be that Judah gets it. 
It's going to be that Babylon will too, in all those who stand in pride against the God of the universe. Judah might might have been a little better than Babylon, but they still stood in their pride. They did not depend, as a nation, they did not depend humbly upon God and his promises. But the people of God who were in Judah, they understood the word of Yahweh, and there's a special message for them. This is very important, though, God says to Habakkuk. Habakkuk asks for his mercy. God says there won't be any immediately. Babylon will be this instrument of discipline. So what do the righteous do? What will those who trust in Yahweh do when this discipline comes down and they're caught in it? Where will the faithful turn when the trouble turns against their nation? What do believers do when there's a time of great turmoil? We can apply this corporately as Christians living in a place. This would be preachable in any country. What do Christians do when the world around them that they find themselves in are pressing upon them, are bringing great turmoil against them? But it's very personal too. What do we do as individual believers, children of the living God through faith in Christ? What do we do when turmoil surrounds us personally, uh, in our families, in our workplace, whatever? What do we do? Because this message that Habakkuk will give transcends all of these. Verse 3, for still the vision awaits its appointed time, the judgment he's talking about. It hastens to an end. It's coming. It may not look like it is today. But as it turns out, within 30 years it comes, Babylon comes and fulfills this prophecy. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. But here's the encouragement, the call that the prophet gives to the people of God living in the midst of Judah, which will soon be enveloped by Babylon. It's going to refer to Babylon first and then to the faithful, those who will trust in Yahweh. Verse 4, behold, his soul is puffed up. Yes, it's true about Babylon. They're worse than Judah. He's, God acknowledges this. But pride is pride. And no pride can stand in God's presence. Behold, his soul is puffed up. And because of this pride, he says of Babylon, verse 4, and this is true of anyone who stands in their own pride, it is not upright within him. Pride says that I, on my own, self-accomplishment, self confidence, self-worship, I'm okay, I'm doing fine. And that means I'm not right. My soul is not right if I think that. I'm in my sins. It's my sin speaking, and as pride grows, it makes me even more deluded about the truth. And pride means you're unrighteous. There's no pride in the face of God's righteousness. His soul, Babylon, is puffed up. It is not upright within him. Yes, judgment's coming, and yes, Babylon is puffed up like this. He's not right. So what what does the righteous do? The last part of the verse, verse 4, which you have heard before. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Now, Ralph Davis, who is a very capable Old Testament scholar, translates the tenses of the verbs here in the Hebrew and says, it can well be understood to say, but the righteous will go on living by his or her faith. So be, live by faith means to go, on, to go about in a regular fashion, continually living by faith. So in the context, as stuff comes at believers, we go on living, even as it comes upon us, living by the faith we have. Now, we know from the fullness of the Bible's teaching 
Um, the faith that we even have is a gift from God, and we, we gather that. But take this in its initial context and recognize that uh, there's a really specific meaning here about what we are supposed to have faith concerning. You probably know, as I mentioned last week, that this verse, Habakkuk 2.4, this call to faith, is repeated in the New Testament in three really key places, in Romans and in Galatians and in Hebrews. And in those cases, we gather the fullness of what God's calling us to have faith in, His provision of Jesus. This is why Martin Luther understood the gospel afresh when he read the just or the righteous. It means the same thing. Justified before God means you're righteous before God. The just shall live by faith, as it says in Romans. And so he recognizes this faith is in Christ. Now, when Habakkuk is writing, the New Testament authors are able to give the fullness of that meaning. It means the same thing in Habakkuk, but now specifically what is in their purview? Because really what Habakkuk's trying to do is prepare the people of God for difficult times. In times of difficulty uh, can serve to actually focus us on God and increase our faith. That's what's happening here. And this call to faith is doing just this. What is the faith that's being spoken of? Well, what is said just before? Here's a vision. It'll, it'll come in its appointed time. It will not lie. It will surely come. So the righteous will have faith in what God just promised. What he just promised is that Babylon will be judged. Yes, discipline will come to Judah, but Babylon will be judged. You need to trust this, God's saying. What I'm saying is true. You could believe in this word I'm giving you that it will happen. In fact, write it down so you can check it later. But then it goes on to say something further in the passage itself. By the time we get down to verse 14 in the passage, we read, For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. So laden in this difficult message, there is a promise given by God that the wicked will be judged, and eventually God's name will be vindicated. So don't make a rash decision now to go with the Babylonians or run with the Judaites, just because you think they're a little less wicked. Don't go that route because pride will be judged. And you might be in the, the thick of what happens as a nation oppresses. But in the end, God, Yahweh, his name will be vindicated on all the earth. And you want to be aligned and submissive and reliant upon him. So the promises laden in the text are God will judge and God will have his name vindicated. So we should be identified with Yahweh. That's what Habakkuk is appealing to. I promise the judgments are coming, God says. They will come. And when they come, be aligned with Yahweh because eventually, as it says later in the passage, in a glorious statement that's repeated by the other prophets in the midst of similar circumstances, the earth will eventually be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. So faith here, the righteous shall live by faith. In the immediate context, it's faith in the promises of God concerning judgment and deliverance. Judgment of the prideful, deliverance for those who will find themselves depending upon Yahweh. This is what Habakkuk 2.4 means immediately. Of course, as the scriptures unfold, we know the full meaning of the just shall live by faith because we'll never be right with God apart from trusting in God's provision for righteousness, Jesus himself. That's what's so clear in the New Testament. And we can look ahead to know that being full, fully the disclosure. But for the believer living in Habakkuk's day, this is enough. We have to have Yahweh's salvation. The sacrifices we're doing at the temple when we go to worship, they point ahead to what God will provide 
is deliverance. And eventually, there will be a new Jerusalem. And everyone will acknowledge that Christ is Lord and God is King. And this is what we look forward to by faith, even though it's difficult now. Keep in mind, as it relates to faith, faith is not just uh, the pastor telling you, just keep, you got you to gotta stay positive. You got to stay positive. Faith can come when you're not positive. Faith can come when things are terrible. Faith is not just some pill you take to feel better and get relief. Faith is just the truth about what's lying behind whatever's happening. We just may get caught up in what's happening, and we may be, have to suffer through that. But faith says, even though I feel a certain way and it looks a certain way, I know something's true, and God's promises are true, and eventually vindication comes. And that's what faith is. Faith is actually much deeper than just a positive optimism talk. It's not, you know, things are coming, oh, just keep the faith. You can't keep the faith. Hopefully God gives you faith so you know the promises of the word are true. When, God sa- when Jesus says, come to me who are weary and heavy laden, and I will in no way cast you out, you know it's true. Now, everything out in the world, the data says otherwise because of what's happening to you, but you know it's true. That's the faith God gives the faithful. So if you're negative or feel down about, that doesn't mean you don't have faith. We often lack the assurance of faith, the sense that we have the faith, but faith is trust and reliance in an ultimate sense that what God has said and promised is true. In the righteous, they live by faith, no matter what happens. That's what Habakkuk is saying. So when the pressures of a godless culture come to bear, we follow God's word. When sickness comes to us, we know that ultimately under this we are safe in him. It doesn't make us um, healthy all of a sudden, but it makes us recognize, or it calls us to recognize what is true. When death comes, we know the promise of God because of the resurrected Christ, that ultimately there is a a resurrection that awaits. No matter the circumstances, by God's grace, the righteous go on living by his or her faith. Now, the middle section of the passage is heavy because it's a description of a prideful nation. And you could uh, take virtually every nation on earth that has come and gone, and this is the nature of nations, um, will see these things rise up. These are the the fruits of the sinful flesh. Um, Even where God's people exist and do their best to live according to God's word and try to be the salt and light that God calls us to be. The the, the way of nations has been often to look like what we see being described in Babylon, and it's certainly a warning to us as a nation, our nation as well. But let's look at what Babylon was doing, and then we can make our own parallels in our minds as it will be obvious enough. Now, there's a description in verse 5 that just talks as it is Habakkuk, or the Lord, switches to talking about Babylon. Remember, first chapter, it's how Judah was going to be judged by Babylon. Well, guess what? Babylon will be judged too. And this is a description of the prideful nation of Babylon, or the Chaldeans. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. When someone's drunk or intoxicated, they're constantly, uh, they have no inhibitions or self-control, and their worst features come out. They're never at rest. They're trying to get things for themselves and manipulate other people. His greed is as wide as Sheol, the grave that everybody goes into. Like death, he is never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects all his own peoples. That's what Babylon was like in this time frame, in the 7th century B.C. Uh, Babylon is rolling through the existing nations. Now, it's true. Egypt did a bit of this. Assyria was trying to do the exact same thing. Now, Babylon takes over for Assyria, and they expand it even further with more viciousness and more uh, a voracious attitude to take in all for their own and to increase their kingdom. 
So verse 6 says, shall not all these, the nations that they take or that they roll over, shall not all these take up their taunt against him, Babylon, with scoffing and riddles? At some point, Babylon, it's going to come back on you in all the exploiting you did, in the the layout of exploitation that we see them do in their time of conquering, all their greedy ambition, their violence, their manipulation, their abuse, their idolatry, all of that's going to come back on them. And now we have five woes with five specific areas that Babylon's guilty of. Look at verse 6, the middle part, the first woe. Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long? And loads himself with pledges. This is a description as they come and conquer other countries and city-states. They steal the stuff from the people and it goes to a central place. Nebuchadnezzar, you remember the king of Babylon for a time. It goes to pay tribute to him and then those who are loyal to him and his armies. And they take away from the people who've been conquered. It doesn't stop there though. Those people not only stripped of a lot of their stuff when they conquer, those people are then put in pledge or put in debt to the government. They're put into a place where they are completely beholden and dependent upon the government. This is what Babylon did to make the people subservient, take away their stuff, use their stuff, enrich themselves, and then make people uh, owe them. That's what it means that they load themselves with pledges. But what will happen? Eventually, this will crumble. Verse 7, will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? Then you will be spoiled for them. They can't take it any longer, and the people rise up against this. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you. It's going to come back. What you sow, you will reap, Babylon, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to the cities and all who dwell in them. It will come back. Um, Bruckner, the commentator, notes this. This is the cycle of violence and plunder that was the way of the ancient world. Egypt, then Assyria, then Babylon, then Greece, then Rome. And they have the same perpetual action of exploitation towards the people they took. It's just the, the way of who conquers. But it always comes back on them eventually. Proverbs 14.31 Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. You don't see these traits in a nation in decline, that's for sure. But there's another woe that's mentioned. The first one is just the way they stole stuff and exploited people for their own growth of empire. But look at the second. It's related, but there's something more to it, a deeper level. Uh, Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high, to be safe from the reach of harm. So now the exploitation they're doing is for greedy ambition, to pile up for themselves more security so they could be more and more apart, separate people out from that higher, uh, rich class, if you will, that ruling power from the others so that they can set up their house for years. It's the idea that I can get more and more and more stuff, accumulate more and more things, so my name goes on, my dynasty lives on, and nobody, not even God, could take it from me if I can make enough, if I could do enough. And of course, this is uh, uh, foolish because none of the things that we accumulate are guaranteed to have their value tomorrow and they could be all taken away. But that's not the way they're thinking as Babylon rolls through and does what it does. It says in verse 10, you have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. The way you're exploiting others to build up yourself into this place of dynastic ruling is cutting off people. You have forfeited your life as a result. Verse 11, for the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the work the woodwork respond. The stuff you built up, it will testify against you eventually, and this will come crumbling down. 
Robertson, O. Palmer Robertson, who writes a great commentary on this, says, the king's dynasty crumbles despite all the efforts to secure the throne by amassing unlimited wealth. The idea, the pride that you can as a nation build up so much that you are unassailable is a foolish pride. The third woe, this is a woe that has to do with the violence that necessarily happens in their rise. As Babylon does this, there's no way this is everybody, this is going to happen just peacefully. There's going to be people killed and hurt and maimed and injured, violence. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, is it not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing? Eventually, they're going to be judged for this kind of treatment of people to build themselves up. You know, think about in the scriptures about the different cities that were made that ended up in opposition to God. Cain, remember Cain? He went and built the first city, dedicated to his own glory, essentially. Then there was the attempt of the building of the empire of Babel. We're going to build a tower so big that God can't send another flood to kill us. In your face, God, that's what Nimrod, great name for a guy like that, who founds Babel. God's judgment came upon Sodom in a similar way. We will live according to our own standards. It will become so powerful that God can't do a thing about it. Egypt was advanced by the slaves of Israel, and they were judged. Fire and judgment ultimately comes to this. I was thinking about this, and I know we want to make you know, jumps and think of all the ways this might parallel America. I avoid that a bit because I don't think these are one-for-ones. But we have to recognize, even though we've got a great history here, I'm so thankful to God to be born in this country compared to so many other places. But I want to stop short of doing what the Judites are doing. They're all worse than us. We got some stuff. And there's no doubt. I mean, the country had a lot of advance on the basis of man-stealing. That's blood. There are many wars we fought, and you could argue many of them had to be fought, but you might argue some of them maybe not. There's bloodshed. And you know, for our own autonomy, so that we can have the life we want to live, so that we can have sexual immunity, we kill 2,000 babies a day. So we can do what we want to do and not be hindered by having to raise a child. We got plenty of stuff. We can recognize where God's judgment is justified. We see it in Babylon as they develop in this way. But verse 14 pauses. This has been pretty heavy. But verse 14 is a reminder to those hearing this message. Don't forget the ultimate end, though. Yes, this immediate will be difficult. Babylon will deserve everything it's getting. But verse 14, what a reminder. That the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, even if it's in judgment at first. You cannot have that pride in the face of God for all of your existence. It will crash and the glory of the Lord will be known in that judgment, and then ultimately it will really be known as everyone, everyone calls upon the name of the Lord or bows their knee to him. You know, Isaiah, some 50 years before this, said something similar in his prophecy. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, the Lord says, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Difficult times may beset us. We may have to live through those times. But ultimately, the glory of the Lord will come. And this is a bit of an encouragement in the midst of a difficult strain of condemnations. But we continue uh, to the fourth woe. Look at verse 15. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. Babylon was to particularly debauched in the way they used wine, in the way they used substance. 
Um, so it's literal in this sense, but it's also in any which way they, they use things to impose upon people or the people get stuck in this and it's a way of manipulating them to do whatever they want, all unrighteous things. I was thinking this week how they just let Bill Cosby out of jail. I don't know all the particulars of the case, but I remember there were some pretty tight cases, uh, many of them, about how he used substance to drug women and assault them. And it seemed pretty cut and dry, the details. You know, for all the political trials that you see, this one, there was just so much evidence, and then yet he's released on some technicality. But the very act of doing that kind of a thing uh, is, is applied to a nation where they get their the people they're subduing drunk and then manipulate them or use them or mistreat them for their own sinful desires. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You can see what's being said. You know, drunkenness in the scriptures never given in a good light. It always causes major trouble. Imagine um, the shaming of Noah when he was inebriated. Lot's daughters and their plot, their sinful plot with their father through drink. David tried to get Uriah drunk so he could uh, go back to be with his wife and then David wouldn't be blamed for what he had done. Drunkenness and sexual violation, they go together, it seems, even in the scriptures. And this is deliberate, not inadvertent. Well, what will happen? Verse 16, this is what will come back at you, Babylon, for that kind of manipulation. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself, drink yourself, and show your uncircumcision. You'll, you'll have to show your lack of glory. You'll be shamed. The cup of the Lord in the Lord's right hand, which is symbolic of his cup of wrath, will come around to you, and utter shame will come upon your glory. You will not be able to do this kind of manipulating and, and, and exploiting of people for long. Verse 17, another reference to something they did. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you. Lebanon's this beautiful country on the coast now that had lush, it had animal life, filled with natural resources. And the Babylonians are famous for tearing that down to build their kingdoms. And there were ways to manage those things. Of course, you could use those things, but they tore them down to the ground and killed the animals that lived there. It was a barren wasteland at that time. And this was spoke judgment. It was a picture of the way Babylon was. Strip it bare for their own good. And the Lord speaks a word of judgment. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, Babylon, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. The tables will be turned. There's one last woe in this section, starting at verse 18. Five of them so far, if you've been following along. This one is the capstone that leads to the statement uh, calling for the humility that we're waiting for. If you're like me, this is heavy, you're waiting. Lord, what, what, how can we not go down that road? What should we do? Well, here's the capstone that shows you... Uh, a completely lost or a place that is so off the rails. Um, it shows itself in the foolishness of idolatry. Idolatry, this idea where you can have something you create be your God. It could provide for you what you need. And it was literal to them in this very spiritistic culture to make actual idols. And they were really memorials to their self uh, provision, and they put it somewhere, and they call upon it, and they really, by doing it, was a statement of something they had made. It was a, a self-divination, essentially. Look at what it says in the passage, verse 18. What profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it? I mean, how, how do you look to this thing for divine help when you may, you know it's not divine, you made it. Well, you're saying you're divine, that's the point. A metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake. 
How foolish. You make this thing, you bow down to it, you think it's divine because you made it, and you call to it to speak to you. To a silent stone arise in verse 19. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver. There's no breath in it at all. So all this idolatry you have is just an ode to yourself. Now, before we go further, because we don't have the same cultural uh, contextual constraint in our minds, but if you go many places in the world today, there's a much more holistic spiritual view. Americans tend to think, this is spiritual life, this is uh, work life, this is hobby life. And, but in most of the world, people think in a big circle, and it's all tied to something spiritual. And so the actual physical idols make more sense in that case. But for you and I, it's other stuff. I'm going to work in a mass, a certain memorial to myself that could be my home, could be my stuff, could be my title, could be my... Re- and these become the things we look to for our satisfaction, where we'll, we will get the, what we're longing for, for happiness, for contentment. These are the idols of our day. And God says that these idols cannot give you anything. These are just, these are voiceless things that you keep crying out to, and they cannot give you what you think they can give you. You keep striving for them to build them bigger, and they let you down more and more, and then you die. This is the reality of idolatry. And idolatry of any sort, given over, being given over to it, is the ultimate picture of pride. And that's really what's being judged here. Is they're puffed up, and their spirit is not right. But the righteous, what will the righteous do? They will go on living by their faith. That's what this all builds towards. These five woes focused on the pride of Babylon run amok. Now, we could apply this nationally, but you and I know pride in our own lives always ends bad. John Stott said, pride is your greatest enemy, humility is your greatest friend. So while we think of the pride of the nation of Babylon and how it fell, also be honest, ask God to help you Help us recognize where we harbor pride because it never goes well with pride. The Lord Jesus said, whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. James wrote, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. God never gives a pass on pride. Proverbs 15, 25, the Lord tears down the house of the proud but maintains the widow's boundaries. He always sides with the humble. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. I find it interesting that God used Solomon to pen these Proverbs, a man that constantly had to battle with pride, what I accomplished, and make treaties with other nations so they could worship him rather than worship their God. That would have been his constant struggle. And God, through his spirit, gives him to write Proverbs. In Proverbs eighteen twelve, before destruction, a man's heart is haughty, but humility comes before honor. In Proverbs 28, 26, whoever trusts in his own mind is a fool, but he who walks in wisdom will be delivered. Here is the reality about pride. We see it on the nation level. We see it on the personal level. Pride causes unjustified, even delusional overconfidence. The more pride is allowed to fester, it builds, it gets stronger, and you become more deluded about the actual truth of the matter. Pride causes self-focus. It's all about me. I'm always going to talk about me when we're together, and that repels others. Pride causes us to reject help that we actually need. The more prideful you become, the more self-confident you become, self-sustaining you become, at least in your mind, because it's all an illusion. The more you become like that, the more difficult it is to recognize your need. This is why it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person attain eternal life. They think they've got it all. 
Pride compounds its ill effects as it keeps us blind to our unjustified pridefulness. C.S. Lewis grasped this, and he says it like only he can. Lewis wrote, and unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites in comparison to pride. It was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It is the complete anti-God state of mind. It is pride which has been the chief cause of misery in every nation and every family since the world began. Every messed up relationship you have right now is because of pride. I'm not saying it was yours necessarily, but it's someone is asserting their rights and you must acknowledge my rights. It's that simple. Think of the, who you have something wrong with right now. So the check for us is, is it because of my pride? Where can I humble myself? Don't do like Judah. But Babylon's worse. Leave that to God. Where do you need to humble yourself? Where should I humble myself? And this is what the final analysis in verse 20 gives to the people of God. You'll notice this verse, Habakkuk 2.20. It's a call to humility and submission to God. It's a call to humble worship. You'll notice that we put this on the top of our worship order. Now, I'm going to admit something to you. The reason why I put that on there a while back is when we first got into this building 15 years ago now, when we first got in, everybody was talking right before the service. Now, that's okay. Jesus still loves you. I'm not saying you can't talk when you come into the sanctuary. But the idea of the sanctuary was to give us a sense of, in fact, the way we even devised the building. So you go out from the narthex where you can talk to your heart's content. And then as you come in, the, the, there's a, a small area there in the narthex, or in the, it's, it's that passageway into the sanctuary with the big doors. It's, it narrows it because it's going to focus your mind a little bit on we're now entering into the place where we're going to worship God. Only Jesus is sacred ultimately. You know what I'm saying. This isn't the temple like in the Old Testament. However, it's our time corporately to be quieted and come into the house of God. And so the idea is that we come in and then we would sit and contemplate a little bit before the service started. Now, when we first did this, and this is, again, fine, but we just uh, were so, I don't know, just energetic and excited about it, and we didn't have the the foam on the ceiling, and we didn't have the sound patterns in the back, panels in the back, so it really reverberated early, as some of you remember. And it was really loud in here. It was kind of, and we would have uh, one of the musicians playing a prelude, but you couldn't hear because people were talking. So I thought, I'm going to put that verse in Habakkuk about keeping silent. So that's the reason your pastor put it in there. It wasn't very exegetically derived at the moment. And then as I studied it over the years, I thought, oh, the context is this. This is the context. We live in a world of stuff we make and we think it can help us. We call out to it like it's going to make us happy. And the Lord says, be quiet with all that stuff. It's dead. I am on my throne. Come in silence before me. Submit to me. Rest in me. That's what Yahweh says to us. That's true of our worship time. That's what it's supposed to symbolize. This is supposed to be symbolic of a, a pace setting and a priority setting for all of our lives to know that the Lord God is on his throne. He's in his holy temple. And in the Old Testament, that meant that there was a place in Jerusalem that people went to, be, to recognize, to symbolize the presence of God among his people. Of course, Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of this. He's seated at the right hand of God. God is on his throne. Let us keep silence before him. It's a call to humble worship. Not just corporate worship, but the way we look at the whole of our life. So everything we're involved with as believers, as the followers of Yahweh in Christ, 
we are thinking of him as priority, as the sovereign one. Now, when we do that, whatever happens in our nation or in our surroundings, our household, our neighborhood, that falls into second place compared to what the God of the universe has called us to do. And if this second place thing rises up to try to crush us because of it, so be it. The righteous still live by faith in Yahweh. That's what Habakkuk is saying to the people of God in this passage that is before us. Calvin talking about this need for us to recognize God, to be silent before him. He said this, there's a kind of silence that is when we submit to God in worship. For silence in this respect is nothing else but submission. That's what it's talking about. It's humble worship. And we submit to God when we bring not our own inventions or imaginations, but suffer ourselves to be taught by his word. We also submit to him when we murmur not against his power or his judgments, when we humble ourselves under his powerful hand and do not fiercely resist him as those who indulge their own lusts. The faithful have nothing to fear, Calvin wrote, for they know that their salvation is secured. For though the whole world were leagued against them, it yet cannot resist God. The Lord is on his throne. He's our sovereign one. This is why when we come into the when we come into worship, this, the first song is meant to just focus our purpose. We're here to acknowledge the true and living God. And it, we're, we're, we have some silence about that, some reverence about that. You know, styles aren't the issue so much. It's the hard attitude. But the hard attitude should be when the people of God come together, there's a reverence that we get to sit under God. We need this, especially the beginning of a new week, so we can be recalibrated under his mighty hand. We submit to that, and that's what helps us grow in our faith, the faith that we will go on living by. And we need this on a regular basis among the people of God. It's not just, you know, because pastors want to make sure you're at church for numbers and those kinds of things. It's because we know how important it is for us living in the world to be recalibrated from time to time in God ordains it at least once a week where we have this corporate gathering. But it should set a pace that carries through Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, that you know that the Lord is on his throne and that we keep silence before him, meaning we submit to him and what he calls for us because the voices of the world are loud. The voices of rebellious Judah was loud. The voice of rebellious and murderous Babylon was even louder. But still, the Lord is in his holy temple. And the righteous will go on living by faith in him. There's a professor at Southern Seminary who comments on this feature of worship, this humble worship that I'll conclude with. Uh, Dr. Fentress wrote this. When we find ourselves in the presence of the Lord in worship, it can profoundly transform our perspective on all the things of this world. When vexed by the sinfulness of society, Christians must go to the house of the Lord and worship Him in order to gain the strength, the wisdom, and the insight that we need to rightly understand the world that we are passing through as sojourners. Please bow with me as I lead us in prayer. You, O Lord, are in your holy temple indeed. Let all the earth keep silence before you. Whatever the days may bring, May we be a people who go on living by the faith that you have given us, by trust in your promises, ultimately in Jesus and about the future. Give us a greater strength by depending on the testimony of your word against all voices, by trust in your son's advocacy for us, 
please give us focus on your salvation so that we might worship you. Lord, we acknowledge that times of difficulty for your people, for us, can serve to focus us on you as our Savior and compel us to worship you. May, be that, may that be true for us. I pray this through Christ. Amen. Let's together respond by turning in our hymnals, or you can look at the insert once again. 628. We'll stand together and we'll sing verses 1 through 3.